The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar By Maurice Leblanc Narrated by Paul Sparrow Sound by Patrick Martinez Bourna Arsène Lupin in Prison There is no tourist worthy of the name who does not know the banks of the Seine, and has not noticed, in passing, the little feudal castle of the Malachy, built upon a rock in the center of the river. An arched bridge connects it with the shore. All around it, the calm waters of the great river play peacefully amongst the reeds, and the wagtails flutter over the moist crests of the stones. The history of the Malachy Castle is stormy like its name, harsh like its outlines. It has passed through a long series of combats, sieges, assaults, rapines, and massacres. A recital of the crimes that have been committed there would cause the stoutest heart to tremble. There are many mysterious legends connected with the castle, and they tell us of a famous subterranean tunnel that formerly led to the Abbey of Jumiege and to the manor of Agnès Sorel, mistress of Charles VII. In that ancient habitation of heroes and brigands, the Baron Nathan Cahorn now lived, or Baron Satan, as he was formerly called on the Bourse, where he had acquired a fortune with incredible rapidity. The lords of Malachy, absolutely ruined, had been obliged to sell the ancient castle at a great sacrifice. It contained an admirable collection of furniture, pictures, wood carvings, and faience. The baron lived there alone, attended by three old servants. No one ever enters the place. No one had ever beheld the three Rubens that he possessed, his two Vateaux, his Jean Goujon pulpit, and the many other treasures that he had acquired by a vast expenditure of money at public sales. Baron Satan lived in constant fear, not for himself, but for the treasures that he had accumulated with such an earnest devotion, and with so much perspicacity that the shrewdest merchant could not say that the baron had ever erred in his taste or judgment. He loved them, his bibelots. He loved them intensely, like a miser, jealously, like a lover. Every day at sunset, the iron gates at either end of the bridge and at the entrance to the court of honor are closed and barred. At the least touch on these gates, electric bells will ring throughout the castle. One Thursday in September, a letter carrier presented himself at the gate at the head of the bridge, and, as usual, it was the baron himself who partially opened the heavy portal. He scrutinized the man as minutely as if he were a stranger, although the honest face and twinkling eyes of the postman had been familiar to the baron for many years. The man laughed as he said, It is only I, monsieur le baron. It is not another man wearing my cap and blouse. One can never tell, muttered the baron. The man handed him a number of newspapers and then said, And now, monsieur le baron, here is something new. Something new? Yes, a letter. A registered letter. 
Living as a recluse, without friends or business relations, the Baron never received any letters, and the one now presented to him immediately aroused within him a feeling of suspicion and distrust. It was like an evil omen. Who was this mysterious correspondent that dared to disturb the tranquility of his retreat? You must sign for it, Monsieur le Baron. He signed, then took the letter, waited until the postman had disappeared beyond the bend in the road, and, after walking nervously to and fro for a few minutes, he leaned against the parapet of the bridge and opened the envelope. It contained a sheet of paper bearing this heading, Prison de la Santé, Paris. He looked at the signature, Arsène Lupin. Then he read, Monsieur le Baron, there is, in the gallery in your castle, a picture of Philippe de Champagne, of exquisite finish, which pleases me beyond measure. Your Rubens are also to my taste, as well as your smallest Watteau. In the salon to the right, I have noticed the Louis XIII cadence table, the tapestries of Beauvais, the Empire Guéridon signed Jacob, and the Renaissance chest. In the salon to the left, all the cabinet full of jewels and miniatures. For the present, I will content myself with those articles that can be conveniently removed. I will therefore ask you to pack them carefully and ship them to me, charges prepaid, to the station at Batignolles within eight days. Otherwise, I shall be obliged to remove them myself during the night of the 27th of September. But under those circumstances, I shall not content myself with the articles above mentioned. Accept my apologies for any inconvenience I may cause you, and believe me to be your humble servant, Arsène Lupin. P.S. Please do not send the largest Vato. Although you paid 30,000 francs for it, it is only a copy, the original having been burned under the Directoire by Barat during a night of debauchery. Consult the memoirs of Garat. I do not care for the Louis XV Chatelaine as I doubt its authenticity. That letter completely upset the Baron. Had it borne any other signature, he would have been greatly alarmed, but signed by Arsène Lupin. As an habitual reader of the newspapers, he was versed in the history of recent crimes, and was therefore well acquainted with the exploits of the mysterious burglar. Of course, he knew that Lupin had been arrested in America by his enemy Ganimard, and was at present incarcerated in the prison de la Santé. But he knew also that any miracle might be expected from Arsène Lupin. Moreover, the exact knowledge of the castle, the location of the pictures and furniture, gave the affair an alarming aspect. How could he have acquired that information concerning things that no one had ever seen? The baron raised his eyes and contemplated the stern outlines of the castle, its steep rocky pedestal, the depth of the surrounding water, and shrugged his shoulders. Certainly, there was no danger. No one in the world could force an entrance to the sanctuary that contained his priceless treasures. 
No one, perhaps, but Arsene Lupin. For him, gates, walls, and drawbridges did not exist. What use were the most formidable obstacles or the most careful precautions if Arsène Lupin had decided to effect an entrance? That evening, he wrote to the Procureur of the République at Rouen. He enclosed the threatening letter and solicited aid and protection. The reply came at once to the effect that Arsène Lupin was in custody in the prison de la Santé, under close surveillance, with no opportunity to write such a letter, which was, no doubt, the work of some impostor. But, as an act of precaution, the procureur had submitted the letter to an expert in handwriting, who declared that, in spite of certain resemblances, the writing was not that of the prisoner. But the words, in spite of certain resemblances, caught the attention of the baron. In them, he read the possibility of a doubt which appeared to him quite sufficient to warrant the intervention of the law. His fears increased. He read Lupin's letter over and over again. I shall be obliged to remove them myself. And then there was the fixed date, the night of the 27th of September. To confide in his servants was a proceeding repugnant to his nature, but now, for the first time in many years, he experienced the necessity of seeking counsel with someone. Abandoned by the legal official of his own district, and feeling unable to defend himself with his own resources, he was on the point of going to Paris to engage the services of a detective. Two days passed. On the third day, he was filled with hope and joy as he read the following item in the Réveil de Codebec, a newspaper published in a neighboring town. We have the pleasure of entertaining in our city at the present time the veteran detective Monsieur Ganimard, who acquired a worldwide reputation by his clever capture of Arsène Lupin. He has come here for rest and recreation, and, being an enthusiastic fisherman, he threatens to capture all the fish in our river. Ganimar! Ah, here is the assistance desired by Baron Cahorn. Who could baffle the schemes of Arsène Lupin better than Ganimar, the patient and astute detective? He was the man for the place. The Baron did not hesitate. The town of Caudebec was only six kilometers from the castle, a short distance to a man whose step was accelerated by the hope of safety. After several fruitless attempts to ascertain the detective's address, the baron visited the office of the Réveil, situated on the quay. There he found the writer of the article, who, approaching the window, exclaimed, Ganimar, Why, you are sure to see him somewhere on the quay with his fishing pole. I met him there and chanced to read his name engraved on his rod. Ah, there he is now, under the trees. That little man, wearing a straw hat. Exactly. He is a gruff fellow, with little to say. Five minutes later, the baron approached the celebrated Ganimar, introduced himself, and sought to commence a conversation. But that was a failure. Then he broached the real object of his interview and briefly stated his case. The other listened, motionless, with his attention riveted on his fishing rod. When the baron had finished the story, the fisherman turned with an air of profound pity and said, Monsieur, it is not customary for thieves to warn people they are about to rob. Arsène Lupin especially would not commit such a folly.
But, monsieur, if I had the least doubt, believe me, the pleasure of again capturing Arsène Lupin would place me at your disposal. But, unfortunately, that young man is already under lock and key. He may have escaped. No one ever escaped from the Santé. But he... He, no more than any other. Yet, well, if he escapes, so much the better. I will catch him again. Meanwhile, you go home and sleep soundly. That will do for the present. You frighten the fish. The conversation was ended. The baron returned to the castle, reassured to some extent by Ganimar's indifference. He examined the bolts, watched the servants, and during the next forty-eight hours he became almost persuaded that his fears were groundless. Certainly, as Ganimar had said, thieves do not warn people that they are about to rob.